This is Making Shift Happen, and I'm your host, Jen Cates. Over the years, I've coached hundreds of clients to find their ideal self through the way they nourish their bodies and minds, and now I'm here to help pass on these same strategies to you. So let's stop the madness and get your results once and for all. Let's go. Hello, Shredders. Welcome to another episode of Making Shift Happen. I'm your host, Jen Cates, and I am joined by the wonderful Annie Pendigraft, PhD, mind you, so Dr. Pendigraft here. She is from Find Your Flow MTB, which you can find on Instagram. Again, that's Find Your Flow MTB. And she is a licensed professional counselor and also, of course, a PMBIA level one coach. So she knows all about mountain biking, but then also knows all about fear and and how the heck you can make friends with fear, which is the topic for today's episode. And I want to go ahead and welcome Annie um, to the uh, to the podcast. It's, it's so nice to have you on, but I do want to take a couple of minutes and, and let you introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me on. I love talking about this topic. So Uh, Yeah, as you said before, um, I have the pleasure of being both a mental health professional and uh, dabble in the mountain biking professional world through my coaching. Um, I have been working with athletes both in a clinical and in a coaching level now for several years. Um, Like I said, I'm like you said, I'm a licensed psychotherapist. So that's been my first passion is really working with people on an individual level through trauma recovery. And the trauma recovery process led me to combine that passion with my passion for mountain biking, but especially making mountain biking accessible for people. And so through that, I now incorporate into my both my private clinical practice as well as my coaching practice of how to help people work through fear both as recovery from a sports-based trauma, which is a big part of my private practice, and as a part of a performance improvement on the bike of how to help people work past those mental blocks that oftentimes come from some sort of misfire in our nervous system. So that's, yeah, a bit about me. I love to be on my bike, whether that's my gravel bike or my mountain bike, whether I'm in Bend, where I live half the year, or in Maine, where I live the other half of the year. Um, I love being on my bike, and I especially love working with people who don't feel like they belong on a bike. Um, And sure, biking is not for everyone, but that should be your choice. Um, It shouldn't be something where you feel like you don't belong. I love that, that sense of belonging. I feel like that's incredibly important. Because I know as a coach, (laughs) and Annie, you know, maybe you have heard this before with your clients and and athletes, but as a coach, I hear often that people just talk about how they can't keep up with their friends or they're worried about joining a group ride because they're worried about being too slow or, you know, fill in the blank of some sort of insecurity or personal revelation that maybe they've had or haven't had. And it's just the, the thoughts that are in their mind. I don't know. Is that kind of something that resonates with you and and the clients you've worked with? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I figured. Mountain biking, you know, you know this, it's stressful. Like mountain biking is not a spa day. 
you can get to a point around biking where sometimes it feels like it is, but it certainly is an intimidating sport to get into. And anytime, and we'll talk about this today, but anytime our stress response system is active, all of these old stories come flooding in that are so limiting and that aren't about mountain biking and aren't about the clothes you're wearing or the people you're riding with, or if your bike is good enough, it's about all this other stuff that's happened. And if we sort of are passive in that process, it can be really restricting and feel really challenging to belong somewhere where there's some a stress response involved. Um, because it's, yeah, the stories that our brains tell us when we're stressed out typically aren't true. Yeah. Those lying little stories. <laughs> the brain is yeah. complex. <laughs> and that, that we definitely know. So I would love to know, you know, what exactly was your inspiration to start talking more about fear as it relates to, especially mountain biking, because I know lately you've been doing some presentations through social media and some Zoom calls and things like that that you're presenting to our community. So I'm, I'm kind of like wondering what is really inspiring you to talk about that with your with your audience? Yeah, so I, let me see, I've been coaching now for probably five or six years. And I have been so lucky to have my primary coaching experience have been with a company called Ladies All Ride that you're yeah. you probably familiar with, with Lindsay. For sure, Lindsay. Yeah. yeah. Lindsay, they're from Bend. And so I was just really fortunate that as a baby mountain bike coach, I got taken into that fold to learn how to be that type of coach that I wanted to be. And which meant that I was really getting to work with mostly women who were getting into the sport for the first time, maybe in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and were experiencing a pretty strong fear response. And that fear response became something that was very inhibiting to access their confidence. It was inhibiting for them to feel like they belonged and it was really limiting. And at that point, I was already well into my practice as a, as a therapist. I've been in the mental health field since I was a wee bit, like since I was like 19 years old. <laughs> so nice. that was, yeah, that's been always my first passion. And so I had just recently, when I, you know, a few years into my mountain biking career, I was also starting to work more and more with trauma recovery and was seeing all of these parallels between how to process through more complex emotional, physical, sexual trauma with psych, with a sports-based trauma and with how fear lives in our system and how it can override our reality. And I start, started, to see, started to see all of these parallels of how to use some of the same skills I was using as a, as a clinician, as a therapist, as a coach to help people be able to be more present in their biking. And so it, the more I talked about it, I started talking about it at Ladies All Ride camps. I started talking about it on random sort of podcasts with friends. Um, I started talking about it with athletes from other sports. And it became really apparent that it was this big thing that no one was talking about, that everyone experiences, not just women, like every gender identity experiences fear. And a lot of us are paralyzed by it, if not cognitively, like in our awareness, then somewhere in our body, fear gets stuck and it like makes us freeze in some way. And so I just started kind of throwing it out there to people, incorporating it into my private practice, working with, you know, mostly women through the ladies all right clinics to start to start to teach these skills. And it just is almost 
it's a human experience and Mm -hmm. people don't know what to do about it and don't know that there is something to do about it because our brain is so powerful. It's able to convince us that that's, that's all there is, is how we feel when we're afraid. It can be very powerful. So it's been as equally powerful to give people the knowledge and information and the skills that they need to find themselves on their bike again, by snuggling up with fear and realizing what it is and what it isn't and seeing that there are actually all of these opportunities within fear to develop into a more confident rider. Yeah. It's like that fear, just that, that disbelief that fear is the reality, you know, and, and we're so convincing because gosh, you know, fear can make it seem so real when you're, when you're experiencing the anxiety or anxiousness or just elevated emotion in that state of, oh my gosh, I'm getting ready to go into this drop. You know, just as an example, I'm not a drums, a drops or jumper personally. I do baby drops. I do baby <laughs> jumps. You know, I'm not a launcher by any means, but I have many a friend who launch their bike and I love watching them do it. Absolutely love it. It's poetry in motion. But for me to do that, just, I definitely feel that sense, you know, on steep terrain, for example, and and definitely before, you know, if there is a heavier drop at the bike park, I'll skip it. I'll do a go around and, and have my flow because that's my flow for that day. But, you know, is there a desire to maybe go a little bit further with my jumps and drops? Yeah, I think so. I think there is a little bit of desire there. And I know that's the situation for a lot of my listeners because that's something I've asked uh, just in the last couple of days since recording, uh, before recording this episode with you is, you know, hey, what are your goals for 2023? Just out of curiosity, not saying that you need to have goals for 2023, but I will say that a lot of folks do use this time of the new year and, and you know, resolutions and things like that, and do use it to kind of check in with themselves to see what, what do they want to do? And I think that's completely valid. So I asked, and quite a few folks responded with, I want to go to the bike park more in 2023. And, you know, I'd love to go at least once a week with the intention of getting more comfortable with drops and jumps. And I think that fear can go hand in hand with that uh, scenario a lot on the mountain bike. Now, I also said that you weren't, you did mention that you're a gravel cyclist, which I love. Gravel is one of my new loves in the past couple Mm -hmm. of years. So, but I do find that there is even some limitations on the gravel bike. Cause I know we're talking a lot about mountain bike too, but you know, we do definitely have some gravel listeners and yeah. When you take your gravel bike out on single track, for example, that's a whole new experience, you know, mm-hmm. especially if it's something that you're comfortable doing on a full suspension bike. And then you're like, <laughs> hot damn, what the hell am I doing? I'm questioning yeah. my life decisions right now. So I would love, you know, in, in those couple of scenarios, thinking about like drops and jumps and then also exploring new terrain on your gravel bike, you know, what are some examples of, of maybe how cyclists in those scenarios can just pause and, you know, be more present in their biking, which I think is a great phrase that you said earlier. Um, and, and recognize that that's just a natural fear to normal fear. Like what do, what do we do when we experience fear? Like, how do you, how do you recommend we go forward in those particular types of moments? Sure. So, there's a there's a kind of a three multi-tiered step process that I recommend and I, I won't go into all of this in detail because I think we're gonna keep talking about this stuff. But the okay. 
The biggest thing that I recommend people do is to get to know your fear response because sometimes it's, it's sneaky and you don't know that it's fear. For example, I'll have women, you know, I'll have writers come up to me after I present this at a camp and say, I don't really feel afraid, but when I go up to this, you know, this rock drop on my home trail, I just like squeeze the brakes and stop and get off my bike every single time. But they don't feel what they, for whatever reason, have arbitrarily defined as fear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because ultimately, fear is an emotional response to a physiological experience. And how we make sense of it is our brain putting a label on it of fear. So there's a lot that happens before our brain decides we're afraid. And your brain might not say that you're afraid, but your body might be squeezing the brakes. So I'm going to tell you something is going on there in your fear response system, (laughs) even if you don't feel what you might define as fear. So one of the first things that I recommend people do is, you know, there's this big trendy for good reason thing right now called mindfulness. Yes. I'm all about it. (laughs) I hate that it's trendy, but I like it because it works. Yeah, it is scientifically proven to work to treat a numerous amount of ailments um, it's a fantastic practice and incorporating mindfulness into your writing is a liberating experience. And with fear, what I would recommend is that people just get to know what their fear response is. And typically people are going to experience fear in one to two to three levels, one, or, you know, there's three areas where we feel fear and you might experience all three. You might only experience one. You might experience two. So those three levels are cognitively in terms of our thoughts. We might have thoughts that indicate we're in a fear response. We might have an emotional response of feeling afraid, or sometimes when people are, their fear response is active, they don't feel quote unquote afraid. They may feel angry or frustrated or irritable or blameful. Like I know me, like, especially if I'm writing my partner, I'm like, what did you do (laughs) that made me rinse up and go over the bars on that drop? I don't know what you did, but you did something. Yeah. So, and it wasn't me. (laughs) It wasn't me. Oh, God. No, sorry, I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh so hard at this, but it's only because it's relatable. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll stop laughing. I'll stop laughing. So there, you know, there's the cognitive, the thoughts, the emotional response, or some people experience fear physically where you may feel like your palms are sweaty. You have butterflies in your stomach. You have a flutter in your chest. Um, sometimes people feel fear by their like stomach feels like it drops out of their body. Um, rigidity, that sort of thing. Mine is cognitive. I feel fear, but in visual, like it's visual for me where all of a sudden I see something bad happening to me. Mm. Like, you imagine it. Yeah. And that's what, that's my clue. So the (laughs) the first thing that I tell people is just be curious about your fear Mm. response. What when you have noticed it in the past, if you take the word fear and say, okay, it doesn't have to feel emotionally afraid. That's not, that's not the only way I might experience fear. Then be really curious. What is your fear response? Is it what's happening in your body? What are your emotions? And I, you know, this might sound like 
juvenile, but it's not. It's actually super adult like because we as adults typically haven't been taught emotional intelligence. But yeah. you there are these great little apps or like infographics that you can find on the internet that give you hundreds of emotions. <laughs> yeah. Label put them into boxes of like strong negative, strong positive, passive pe- positive, passive negative. And to look at one and be like, what, you know, if I think about the last time I was, you know, not happy with my performance on a bike and it seemed to be intimidation or fear or lack of confidence, what was, look at those emotions. What was I feeling? And then lastly, like the cognitive, what are your thoughts like when you're feeling afraid, when your fear response is active? That's the first thing I would tell people to do. Because you can't do the rest of my program until you know you're having a fear response. Yeah, you have to identify the culprit. And I, I, not that I'm, I don't want to say culprit like it's a negative thing, but you know what I mean. Um, mm-hmm. You have to identify it. Okay, I like it. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. All right, so that's, there's three tiers. So that's your first step. Get to know yeah. your fear response. Yep. Get to know. Be curious. And this is something that you can do off the bike. You know, if you're, if this is a project of yours, if you're thinking, you know, I have been to the skills clinics, I've learned what to do with my feet. I've learned what to do with my hips. I've learned what to do with my body positioning. I've learned all the skills that I need to learn initially to practice, to be better at drops and jumps, but something still seems to be holding you back. And that something is your, the head game. Then this is a good project is to spend some time meditating, being mindful, just being curious about your own fear response. Love it. Curiosity. It's important. You have to explore things, you know, and I'm, I'm some, I'm somewhat blessed. I don't, uh, get the opportunity to ride with my partner. Um, so (laughs) I've tried, uh, (laughs) but there's a risk to reward ratio that she just wasn't willing to explore some more. So, (laughs) Mm -hmm. however, however, I will say many, a many listener does experience, they do experience rather riding with their partner, um, you know, and it's always fairly entertaining (laughs) to hear, uh, to hear the, the interaction (laughs) that happens, but you know, it's relationship and, and it's one of those dynamics where it's like an external relationship with someone other than yourself, obviously. And, and it does impact. So yeah, I, I, it cracked me up when you were, when you were talking about you know, <laughs> the blame, the little blame yeah. game. I, I yeah. get it. I get it. Yeah. I'm sure that resonates with other folks. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I like it. So yeah, identify it, get to know your fear response. Yeah. And you said that, people can be sometimes all three of those things, right? When it comes to cognitive, emotional, or physical fear response. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Some people have a stronger response in one of those domains. Some people have sort of an equally strong response in all of them. No right or wrong. Just get to know your own response. Got it. All right. That makes sense. And and you and I sound similar in terms of uh, the cognitive fear response. Now, I have certainly experienced all three of those things um, because I have actually done ample fear work with my sports psychologist that I hired uh, a couple of years ago to work through a mountain biking crash that I had experienced on Snowmass. It was the stupidest crash, Annie. Oh my God. It was the dumbest thing I've ever done. And it looked probably like if you would have seen a video of that crash, if I had a video of it, I wish I did. Uh, you would have been like, what? You know, you did all of that in, in that? Like, it wasn't even that intense. 
but it felt intense to my body, definitely to my brain, um, because it impacted my mobility for, for, mm. uh, you know, like up to a year. And, and it was only because I, I opted to avoid surgery. Um, yeah. but yeah, there was a neck injury and a shoulder injury and, you know, I worked with a professional. So I, I just wanted to go ahead and pause for a moment and just say, listeners, you know, Annie's not asking me to say this, but if you are experiencing something happening to you consistently, whether it's on the bike or off the bike, I think it's really wise to reach out to a mental health professional. Mm-hmm. I, I cannot emphasize the importance with working with a mental health professional, whether it's about your own personal traumas, you know, again, on or off the bike, or just someone to talk, to talk through things. You know, I, I, you know, therapy, as all my listeners know, because I talk about it probably every five episodes, <laughs> therapy is incredibly important. And it's something I get incredibly jazzed about just talking because I really strongly encourage folks to explore having some sort of mental health therapist in their corner. You know, whether, again, whether it's for the sport that you love or just for the life that you live, I I can't see enough good things about, about therapy and exploring fear because that was one thing that we did definitely do, you know, with, with my sports therapist that I worked with here locally in Denver. Um, Dr. Walker, you know, if anyone's interested in, in, you know, if you're local and you're looking for someone local, but, uh, yeah, I think it's really important to identify, you know, what your fear response is, like you said, and, and I will go ahead and say Annie, only because you're going to get a kick out of this and maybe the listeners will too. I'm definitely a cognitive responder. Uh, I certainly tense up physically. Like that is, that is one thing I, I start to tense up, like, especially in the upper body. Uh, physically on the bike when I experience fear, but cognitively, yes, I am a, um, a self-identified catastrophizer (laughs) and maybe some listeners can identify with that and kind of get a chuckle out of it. But I do think worst case scenario fairly often. Um, And I think it's because I used to work in scientific research for years Mm -hmm. and you always like in an instant when you work in research, you are, are breed, you're bred to basically think about all scenarios as quickly as you can. And unfortunately, like that's just how, well, fortunately, actually, I think, I think it's a good thing. That's just how my brain works. <laughs> um, and sometimes that does bleed over into my mouth. Like, <laughs> so there you go. In case, in case some other listeners identified with with how Annie identifies as, you know, being more of a cognitively fear-based type of person um, than, yeah, or a responder, I should say, then, yeah, you're not alone. <laughs> it's not just you, Annie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, some, sometimes it's nice just to know that you're not alone, honestly, you know? Yeah. I think that's been one of the best parts about talking about this more is it hits, I mean, there's just so many people that feel powerless to this. And you don't have to. No, you don't. Okay. I like it. I like it. Um, now do you want to explore the next couple of tiers? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Let's, let's dive in. So one of the theories that's sort of necessary to have a, just an introduction to that ties into the next step to step two is really what's going on in our brain and in our nervous system, our central nervous system being our brain our peripheral being the rest of us that is resulting in the experience of fear because that once you know that it can really help 
get you more present more quickly and stop the bleeding, so to speak, in terms of the damage that can happen when our fear response goes off the rails. So oftentimes, you know, the fear response is going to be triggered by one of, one of two general situations, something that scares us, like the idea of something. So riding with people that we are, have labeled as faster than us, going to a bike park that we feel intimidated by specific trail or feature that's intimidating to us or that we've had issues with in the past. So that's one area. Something else that may trigger the fear response is an accident, an injury or a, or a, like a crash that happens on, on your ride. But either way, the same sort of response happens in our system. And I use system very generally to include our central nervous system being our brain and spinal cord, and then our peripheral nervous system being everything that branches off of that. So our system, you know, there's this, there's this theory called the triune brain theory, and it's an incredibly overly simplified theory. It, it is not robust enough to really make sense to explain everything, but it, it's a good starting point. <laughs> and the triune brain idea is that our brain is old in some parts and gets newer as it becomes more of a frontal part of our brain. So like the, you know, our, our, brain stem and cerebellum down at the bottom of our brain is very old reptilian brain. Then as we move forward into our midbrain, into our limbic system, that's a mammalian brain that's like common to other mammals. Moving all the way up into our neocortex, which is stands for new cortex, means new cortex, neo, new, which is our human, uniquely human brain. And as we move forward, our brain gets more and more malleable in terms of us being able to interact with it and shape it and change it and coach it and teach it. So our fear response is a reaction between our limbic system and our midbrain and our peripheral nervous system. And what happens is that our peripheral nervous system, which is all of this stuff off of our spinal cord, controls our you know, digestion and our heart rate and perspiration and all times, all kinds of stuff. It is constantly engaging in this thing called neuroception, mm-hmm. which just means it's looking for signs of safety or threat. That's one of the reasons we have a peripheral nervous system. One of many, many reasons. Keep us alive. Then, yeah. <laughs> like, this is doing it. No matter what, <laughs> always doing it. Yeah. And it's, it's checking for safety in our external environment, in our relational environment, and in our internal environment. And it is doing it all the time without us ever knowing it or being sort of in control of it. Which was great, like back in the day when there were a lot of threats. But now that we live in this like cushy, amazingly safe world, like our nervous system hasn't quite caught up to like how safe things are. And that's especially true if you're someone who has survived hard things. Like if you have lived in unsafe environments or had, you know, caregivers who were unsafe or who, you know, have been exposed to or survived trauma, your neuroception is especially strong because it thinks it needs to be understandably. So, so we get these messages that come in through our peripheral nervous system that our brain has nothing to do with. Like our brain is just like, like going along on the bike ride, having a great time. And then something happens. It's oftentimes when I hear people say, I didn't feel afraid, but I grabbed the brakes. Mm -hmm. That to me is telling me that your peripheral nervous system has picked up on a threat. 
And it could be a threat that it's in your internal system because your heart rate speeds up because you know you're getting to something that you didn't want to do in the past. And even though you haven't cognitively started to realize it, your heart rate has sped up enough that your neuroception understands that as a threat and makes you rigid, makes you freeze up, squeeze the brakes because you want to feel more control, squeezing the brakes, yeah, control. Yeah, heck yeah. Yeah. So what happens is that once that system activates, that, that fight or flight system, because a threat is, is sort of assessed, it's this big uh, closed system called the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal system. And it's okay. HPA for short. Yeah. And that runs your whole body. It's big. It starts in your brain. And then goes into your pituitary gland. You know, hypothalamus is in your midbrain. It's in that limbic system. Then you have your pituitary gland right by it. And the, but your adrenal glands all the way down in your midbody, mm-hmm. your kidney. And so that process starts so that we can get ready to respond, so that we have the neurochemical availability, the you know the, the energetic supply to manage the threat. So. What happens once that process starts is it can take time, like literal time for that to clear out because it's, it's a big system. Like it, it's like once that, that chemical process gets going, it's just going to take sort of a predictable amount of time for a cycle to complete itself. And while that is happening, that midbrain, that, that mammalian brain is going to be the primary responder to understanding and making the story, quote unquote, about what's happening. Your monkey brain or your mammalian brain is going to be the storyteller because it's the first responder during that HPA process, during that fear process. So this is a very, it's a very reliable responder, I'm assuming. (laughs) And and I'm I'm sarcastic. Yes, it's the strongest responder. It's our first responder most of the time. It's very robust part of our brain. Mm-hmm. It's even more robust. And I like to talk about this, especially with folks who have this like love-hate relationship with non-biking because of fear, is there are some of us, oftentimes it's more common with women because of the way we're socialized as little girls, that we have overactive fear centers. Our amygdala is our fear center. It's our emotional mind. And Brains are like gardens. Whatever you water is what grows. And if we are being t- constantly told as kids to like, watch out, don't do that. Be careful. You know, like what, what part of our brain is getting all the blood flow, the part that assesses and responds to risk, our fear center, our amygdala. And so we actually, like people can actually have more robust amygdalas, which gives us like a bit of a higher fear sensitivity. On a side note, I will say that that also makes us like so delightful to be around. <laughs> like it's the reason why we do all these like women's things. Okay, got it. You know, because we have like such good emotional capacity. The same part of our brain that gives us the fear emotion gives us joy. And okay. you know, double-edged sword. Yes. Yeah. And so it's one of the reasons why, you know, like all genders are kind of getting into this, but women sort of have been the pioneer in community building within mountain biking is because we're good at it. Like our brains are really good at making people feel safe and welcome and belong, belonged, belonged is not a word. Um, so anyway, it is now. 
Yeah, maybe it is a word, actually. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna make it a word. <laughs> like that side note, that emotional yeah. mind, well, it can cause us to have a higher fear sensitivity. Like I wouldn't want to be without it. I love my emotional mind, and I love feeling it. Um. So anyway, that like that time I'm talking about, that time period. Let's say let's give it like a general time period of twenty to thirty minutes, which can seem like well, that's a long time. If you were to do nothing else, 20 to 30 minutes is how long it's going to take for that HPA axis to cycle through. But um, but, but we want to respond to fear now. <laughs> I know. So what do we do? So that's what you just said, Jen, is so beautiful because that is what happens is yeah. we want to get back into our frontal cortex, which is our rational mind, our logical mind, abstract thinking, humor. We want to get back into that brain faster than our system wants to physically allow us to. And if you're with other people, you can bet that they're in their frontal cortex already and they're going to try and logic you out of your fear response. Like by giving you facts and figures and data and information about like how steep it is. And if it were just dirt, you'd do it. And you've done something just like this at Whistler last year. And mm. it's only a whatever percent grade, like, which is all true. And it's, you know, it's beneficent. Like that person is trying to do something kind, but yeah. your <laughs> HPA system is going and your limbic system is on demand when it's the primary responder and it's active, you're not great at understanding and processing logic. And so it just kind of, yeah, it just hits our brain and bounces off and typically makes us feel dumb or like something's wrong with us, that we're not understanding our writing partner or a buddy telling us why we should be able to do something rather like, because we can't comprehend it yet. Yeah. And so really it's important to give yourself grace as an initial part of this step is to be like, okay, 20 to 30 minutes. If I were to do nothing else, 20 to 30 minutes, but I'm going to tell you some stuff that you can do to speed it up a little bit. Cause that's, we want to get back to flow. Like we want to have fun. Yeah. You yeah. know, is this, I wonder, all right. If anyone has ever ridden with me and you're listening, you know how much I laugh when I bike. Mm-hmm. First things first, I laugh because yeah, biking is fun. Like you said earlier, Annie, it's fun as hell. Like you want to do it because it's, it brings so much joy and it does. Mm-hmm. It brings so much joy to my life as well. I will say when I have a, when I experience fear, sometimes there are moments where I will pop a joke because it is all I have in me to make myself not lose it in the moment, especially if like something is, is really steep or I'll start if I'm not popping a joke and maybe I'm not ready to pop a joke mentally or physically, I will start laughing. And the laughing does help me kind of release a little bit of like pain and or fear. Is that somewhere on the spectrum? Is that like my body's attempt at maybe trying to get back into the frontal cortex or something? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. That is. So I actually, one of the techniques I teach people is if you crash and you're physically fine, it's like to get up and act stupid. Okay. Like to get up and like make a giant noise that represents how you feel. Got it. <laughs> because like, ta-da. Yeah, that makes you laugh. And okay. you can only access humor if your frontal cortex has some stimulation in it. 
like if it's got some light in it. And that will start to jumpstart that frontal cortex coming back online. And so humor is in our neocortex, it's in our new brain. That's where we experience. That's why, you know, we think dogs are funny, but that's like anthropomorphization. They're not actually humorous. Dogs aren't funny. We think they're funny because we're able to as humans. (laughs) (laughs) Dogs don't tell jokes. Like mammals, like humans are the only mammals that really, I'm sure there's probably some like animal scientists out there that could disagree with that. But like, as far as like, for the most part goes, like humans have a unique relationship with humor. It's in our frontal brain. And so when humor starts to become more accessible, and if you can get to humor with autonomy, with agency, that actually like will help that 20 to 30 minutes, you know, like drastically reduce. Okay. So that's one thing to do. So it's, and there's a few other things that you can do yeah. in that time period. Yeah. So one of, so one of the things that happens um, with our fear response is that you know there's a, something physiological that triggers our fear, whether it was like a physical accident, like a crash, or it's like something that's reminding us of something because of an experience we've had in the past with that feature or trail or whatever it is, or it's something else that you don't even know, which is okay. The so what happens is that. Like we, in our system, all deep down inside, like down, these old messages exist that are activated by our stress response, not just in mouth making, this happens in life too, but these are typically stories that we've learned about ourselves and they're stored in the part of our brain called the hippocampus, which is in your limbic system that has to do with memory and learning. And these stories are often have nothing to do with mountain biking, but they, you know, they might be things like, I'm not good enough. I'm a failure. I'm a disappointment. I don't belong. I'm weak. I'm stupid. I'm insignificant. I'm powerless. I can't trust myself. Worthless. All these things. Like we all, everyone has one of these or multiple of these that just kind of live down deep down in our nervous system and they become more active. They become our story when we're stressed out. And they're not true. They're just stories. And one of the things in step two is recognizing that it's a wound, that your story is a wound from something that happened to you and has nothing to do with mountain biking. And one of the ways that you can physiologically emotionally and cognitively integrate that in is by having a go-to adaptive curative belief that is the antidote to your limiting belief. So if your limiting belief is I'm insignificant, your curative belief could be something like I matter. I'm awesome. I belong, whatever it is. And I, I tell people, I treat, teach people to have the word, the words, I matter, and then have a specific image of yourself on a bike that shows you those words. So I know what mine is. There is a bike park in New Hampshire called Highlands. That is a epic ripping bike park. And full huge like drops and jumps and huge granite rock rolls it's so so cool and 
I, you know, had a day there once with some girlfriends where I just rode every single rock roller there was there perfectly, in my opinion, perfectly, totally nailed it. And that's my image is like putting myself halfway down a steep, intimidating granite face piece of rock with my full face on and like my pants and like look, imagining my body positioning, imagining my face and like freeze frame it, screen grab it give it detail. I matter. I can do this. Whatever the words are, let myself feel it. And then all of those things after that, I, I do what's called bilateral stimulation, which is an EMDR technique. EMDR. I was going to wonder, yeah. Tapping or something. Or, or do you just use your eyes? I tap, tap and I do a it. little butterfly tap, which is where I just cross my hands over my chest and put my left hand on my right shoulder and my right hand on my left shoulder, just cross them over and one at a time alternating tap back and forth. And as I think about my image, the emotion and the words, and that will get your nervous system back into what's called a window of tolerance, which is that cool, calm, collected part of your nervous system. It helps combat those maladaptive negative core beliefs that are our wounds, not our story. And it helps give you a corrective curative emotion to feel in your body. And if you do that, just instead of just jumping back on your bike and trying to get over it, quote unquote, get over it. If you were to do that for just a few breaths, just a few breaths, then that is going to significantly decrease the amount of time for that HPA access to clear through. It's going to get it going pretty fast. Like you're going to get back to your prefrontal cortex much quicker. Nice. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of EMDR. Like I've used it in the past for, um, you know, a PTSD incident that I have with drowning, unfortunately. And then also just on the bike with my sports therapist and I loved it. It's exhausting after you do it. Like you just want to go home and take a nap, um, Mm -hmm. because you're tapping into that wonderful mammalian brain and lizard brain rather. But it is fantastic. I'm glad you mentioned something about tapping. So yeah, you yeah. use the little butterfly method. All right, all right. Yeah. yeah, so I'm an EMDR certified therapist. It's a big part of my practice. And right. this technique is not processing, so it's not tiring. It yeah. is it is regulating. Yeah. Um, and it is a wonderful rescue technique. And it's a wonderful meditation technique. So don't wait until you crash to find your image. Love like, it. It's if getting to know your fear and the mental game is a goal for you, is a goal that you have this year for yourself, then make this a part of your training. Take time to think about your words, think about your image, think about your emotion and use that tapping technique, even just for like five minutes once a week to always like my girlfriends, I call it like tap it in, like tap it in. And if it's, it's, you know, goes above and beyond the traditional sort of sports psychology visualization because it integrates your cognitive, your emotional, and your physical being into one experience. And it uses that bilateral simulation to really install it into your nervous system so that if you're out on the trail, I've been doing this myself in my practice for so long that when I'm out on the trail, I don't have to do the tapping. I just think of my image and it's stored in my system. So it comes up and it gives me that state shift I need. I love it. You're shifting it yep. as you're shifting it <laughs> on the bike. 
shifting and shifting. Yeah. Yeah. No, hey, I'm all about making shift happen. So, you know, I will yeah. do the puns all day on that word. Um, <laughs> but it's because, you know, it's so important, I feel like, to make those tiny shifts because they can add up to huge shifts. Like these are amazing tips so far. Um, do you have, I want to be cognizant of time, of course, but do yeah. you have time to go over maybe another tip or then dive into yeah. step number three or? I'll go into step three and kind of that includes another tip. So step three goes into the part of your brain called your reticular activating system, which I call, a lot of people call it the RAS for short, for short, R-A-S, your RAS. And this is the part of your brain that finds patterns. So the best example I can give you, the real world examples, like when you get a new car, like a new vehicle, you would look around and see... Oh my gosh, all of a sudden, why are there so many, whatever, entering around? Um, There are not more of that vehicle on the road. Your brain now is just looking for them automatically. It's an automatic response. It's not something you control. So the part of your brain that's doing that is your reticular activating system. And it is a bit trainable. It's kind of cool. Um, The reason why gratitude practices are so popular is because that the gratitude practice is actually tapping into your reticular activating system so that rather than your system looking for negative, it looks for positive automatically. If you do that practice regularly enough, our razes are, are really good at responding to threat and negative, negative, negative um, stimuli because it is a part of our survival system. When we're back in the day and we're having to like forage for food, We don't want to have to consciously run through our memory system every time to know what berries are poisonous and what berries are nutritious. And so our RAS is doing that for us. It's learning those patterns on its own and programming those patterns into our system. So that is what our our RAS will become very easily patterned onto negative threat-based stimuli. So have you ever noticed Maybe this isn't your experience. Totally is mine. I've noticed this before. Something happens on your bike. You're on a ride. Every like the sun is shining. The birds are chirping. Like the pine needles look especially glowing. Like it's just it's just the day that you've always wanted. And then you and then you biff it. Like something happens. Like you biff something. You like slide out on a corner. Something happens. It's not a catastrophic accident, but you get shaken up. Yeah. And you get, you just jump right back over, jump right back on your bike, get back on, go, go, you know, get on the trail again. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, what is the, look at those sharp, sharp sticks over there. How did those get there? And like that rock, like especially pointy and like that cliff over there, all of a sudden, like, what if I just turned right and rode right off of it? Like, <laughs> I'm only laughing. Yeah. I'm only laughing because this is relatable. Yeah. <laughs> happens i mean it happens to a lot of people that's your reticular activating system your threat response is active and you don't even know it and your ras is finding patterns of threat around you and so it just sucks like it's just not fun um, and so you know if you've gone through steps one and two you're already off to the races for your ras to not overpower you but you don't have to just be neutral in your ras you can actually give it something else to pattern to so that sort of mindset comes in. And there's a lot of coaches out there that focus on mindset, which is awesome. And I like to talk a little bit about the, the physiology underneath mindset, which is your reticular activating system. And the reason why mindset is so powerful is because it's 
giving your reticular activating system a different pattern to latch on to. And so the patterns that I recommend are either skills-based or mindset-based. So skills-based pattern would be like, I'm going to focus very carefully, very thoughtfully, not carefully, very thoughtfully on compression. Like for the next, you know, until the next trail junction, I'm, that's what I'm going to be thinking about. I'm going to be thinking about compression. How can, where can I notice my compression? Where can I give more compression or less compression? I'm going to focus on a skill, say that's compression or body bike separation or my posture, whatever it is. Give yourself something else to focus on. A mindset focus might be like, I'm going to try and be as curious as possible about what's happening. Like, I'm going to be like, oh, I've never noticed that tree before looking so beautiful. Like, I'm going to try and be curious or I'm going to try and be grateful or I'm going to try and be whatever it is. Or I'm going to see what I can learn. Like, I'm going to focus on something I can learn over the next until the next trail junction. It seems like very simple, but what it's doing is it's giving your reticular activating system like a distraction. It's almost like with an infant, you're like waving these keys over here. Like, look over here, look over here, look over here. So it doesn't get a chance to go into that threat pattern of trying to find danger. Spiral, so, that wonderful yeah, spiral. Yeah, totally okay. spiral. So it also has a, a doubly good purpose that it gives, it gives you an experience for what's called self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is just this basically a skills-based self-esteem that if you do A, you know B will happen. And so focusing on a specific skill, you know, if you're thinking about the fundamentals of cycling or what bicycle or mountain biking, whatever it is, like focusing on one of those skills to, that you can do and practice doing it for the next X amount of time. You could choose like until the next trail junction or you could set a timer on your phone just so that you have a pattern ready for the RAS so it doesn't take off on its own. Man, I'm getting so much out of this conversation, Annie. So thank you. I hope the listeners are so far. I'm like, I'm hinging on every word to the point where I'm like, <laughs> to, where, to the point to where I'm like, damn it, I need to have Annie on like one more time, maybe uh, talk about something similar. But this is really helpful. That's so yeah. interesting about the RAS pattern thinking and just how important mindset is, you know, when it comes to this, because I don't necessarily use mindset approach when it comes to fear on the bike, because it's not necessarily my specialty, even though I am a mountain biking coach. Um, but I do it a lot with my health coach, you know, health coaching clients and, and, and just the fitness coaching clients that I work with and just trying to make them not so fearful of the gym or new movements or things like that. So mm-hmm. this is very interesting to see how it all can cascade in ways that yeah. you can kind of get it, get it going. Nice. Yeah. Anything else you want to add to this whole process? You know, there's a, a whole nother branch that I'm developing in the, that I've developed and I'm continuing to develop over the last year or so that yeah. has to do with, with the vagus nerve. And I, oh. unfortunately, don't think we have time to go into it today. Um, and yet maybe I can come back and talk about it another time. But the, there's a lot of, of cool prop, like uh, opportunities and capacity to integrate in like vagal nerve training into mountain biking, which is, I just think so cool. I, you, all right, you have me hooked, Annie, because I'm, <laughs> I've been reading a lot on just vagal nerve and the, you know, toning and, and just a response and things like that, because I am actually a long time meditator. Um, and also a long time, like mindfulness practitioner. And it's so important to me 
but some of the science that I'm reading lately on like vagal nerve stimulation and just trying to utilize that, you know, for those of you who are listening who don't have any idea what we're talking about, it's not Vegas, the city in Nevada that we're talking about. It's, uh, it's the vagus nerve spelled differently. Uh, what is it? V-A-G-U-S, right? <laughs> um, and it, 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 it I, long story short, I would love to talk with you about that for a future episode, because that is something I would love to learn so much more about and see what and how you practice, um, and especially how you implement it and integrate it with mountain biking. Like that's going to be so fascinating. I'm, all right. I'm already excited. It's already done. We'll, we'll do that later. I mean, don't worry. We don't have to do it next week, but we can do it maybe in, in a couple months or so. Um, yeah, that sounds great. I would be happy to chat more about that. Oh the, my goodness. the polyvagal ladder is what I talk about and how Ooh. to integrate that into mountain biking. Okay. <laughs> I like it. It's the polyvagal ladder. I'm totally going to write this down. Um, I absolutely love that. So Annie, I would love to know, like, what are your plans in 2023? I know you've been doing some webinars recently. Do you have any plans to do them in the future? That way people yeah. can follow you and things like that. Yeah. So I'll, you know, I, my goal is to do, you know, a few times a year, do like brief, free introductory overviews for people just to kind of talk about like pretty much the same thing we've just talked about. Um, and those all, I, you know, I just did one in December and kind of getting dates ready for a few others that I'll roll out later in the year. And I'll announce those on my Instagram platform. Um, and then I do have a few, you know, a few ways to like, stay in contact with me to get more information either through webinars, through personal work or through group work. One is that I, you know, I do, I am in private practice, so I don't, I fortunately, fortunately, because I do sports psych work, trauma recovery work with sports injuries, especially like I don't have like a clog in my wait list. Like I typically cycle through people. So I'm able to take on short-term clients occasionally. So I do occasionally have opportunities to work with me, you know, personally, I do most of my, you know, I have athletes all over the country that I work with. I don't just work in the States where I'm licensed um, because with the sports performance work, it gives me a little liberty to work across state lines. Um, If you happen to live in Oregon or Maine, I can potentially bill your insurance, which is kind of nice. So that's one option. Um, I have a couple of um, more intensive opportunities coming up in April and June to do Ooh. a deep dive into how this system works. And we'll go much more in detail on finding your limiting beliefs, developing your curative beliefs, learning to explore those physiologically, cognitively, and emotionally, and then integrating in polyvagal ladder into like your sort of your sports trauma recovery process. So these, these intensives are not just for people who've had a sports trauma. They're for people who just want a more, um, a more like, uh, light and curious relationship with their fear or to kind of dive into the head game. So those are webinars. Those are going to be zoom based. Um, and one, I'm offering two formats, one big four and a half hour chunk, and then one where we're going to meet for an hour and 15 minutes every week for a month. Um, and so those, the four hour chunk is on April 14th, um, which is, I think, a Friday. And it's, I'm going to do that from 8 to 1230 Pacific. The one in June is going to be Wednesdays in June from 5 to 615 Pacific. And those are... Um, are paid. So those are, you know, those aren't free, unfortunately, but no, it's we'll be limited. 
Yeah, they'll be limited to small groups. I'm going to limit them to, you know, six to eight participants so that we're getting a lot of individual time working on this stuff. Um, so that's coming up. I'm going to be doing some in-person intensives in Bend and Maine this summer, and I'll be announcing those dates on my Instagram page this month, um, which will, those events will be, have coaching. So those will be both fear management and coaching on the bike. Um, and then the coolest thing, the thing I'm the most excited about this year is my trip to Peru in May. Yeah. Are you um, doing a world ride with Julie? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love Julie. I just had her on a couple of episodes ago and I oh, loved connecting with her. Yeah. So I went to on a world ride trip to Peru in September and within the first, I don't know, 24 hours of being there, I had like just an, immediately the mo- one of the most clear, you know, moments of just being like, I'm coming back here as soon as yeah. possible. Oh, and so Julie, Julie once is having, you know, I'm, I'm partnering with Julie to do my fear management, my fear exploration immersive in the sacred Valley in Peru, um, as a, as a worldwide beneficiary trip. Um, oh. and that is, uh, May 7th through the 13th, um, Dang. in Peru. It is going to be, I think we have three spots left on that trip. So, um, nice. Yeah, if folks are interested in that, I highly you can reach out to me on Instagram. You can DM me, and I can tell you more about it. It is world class, amazing riding, beautiful humans, oh. a inspiring culture, and then we'll be doing a little fear management every day, which oh, is very needed it. there because the riding is righteous. <laughs> yeah, I heard because Jess Hanna, who was on that trip with you, then uh, mm-hmm. she I know came back from that trip and was just like, wow, you know that was like steep and just challenging, but then in all the right ways, um, in all the right ways, it, everything yeah. goes, it's really magical. And, yeah. and the guys that worldwide works with there are fantastic. And yeah. it's, yeah. So if anyone is looking for a little introduction to, you know, or revisiting this, that South American culture in the sacred Valley, it is, a, it'll be a great trip. So. Oh, now I'm having some FOMO. I might, have to look at my cal- I might have to look at my calendar, but I, I don't know. I, I just don't know. I don't know if I can swing it in May, unfortunately. Um, well, this is great. So for listeners, I'm going to tag everything that Annie commented on in terms of like her Instagram with Find Your Flow MTB, as well as that World Ride Peruvian trip in the show notes. So check out the tags in the show notes that way you can link up, give her a follow up. Seriously. Like I'm already really excited. I wish we could talk longer, but I also want to be respectful of time and everything like that. Um, so that just means you're going to be on later. And yes. I can't say enough good things about just sitting and chatting with you today. Annie, I mean, seriously, listeners, again, give Dr. Annie Pendygraft a follow at find your flow MTB. And on that, anything else you want to add before we close shop here? I think that's it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much, Annie. I really appreciate your time. And for those of you listening, please do check out the links in the show notes. Let me know if you have any questions and give Annie a follow. And I will see you next week for our next episode. Have a beautiful day.